0: Big 5 Global on Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Hello and welcome to this. It is our fourth episode of The Big 5 Global podcast. I am Georgia Tolly and this series is your passport to the fascinating world of construction. Over the next 20 minutes, we're going to be continuing our conversation about all things construction as the industry goes through a really transformative phase. Of course, the sector is really being buffeted at the moment by incredible advances in technology topics that of course will be discussed in detail at the big five global event itself which is taking place from december the 4th until the 7th right here in Dubai. Now, as a bit of a recap, you might remember that last week we had a fascinating discussion on what impact AI is having on the construction and the architecture sector. Now, if you missed it, make sure you go back, download and have a listen. But this week, we're actually turning our attention instead to the I-word, innovation. We're going to look at what it is, why it's important and its role in constructing the buildings of tomorrow. To help us answer those questions I'm delighted to say I'm joined here in the Big Five Global Studio by Jason Burnside who's the Managing Director and a partner at Godwin Austin Johnson. Now of course they're the architectural firm that designed the iconic clubhouse at the Dubai Creek Golf Club amongst many other key landmarks in the UAE. Jason Jason, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for being here in our studio.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Absolute pleasure. Okay, now first up, let's take a look at what we mean by innovation. I have to admit, I feel like it's a bit of a catch-all word. It means everything and nothing. So when a client comes to you and says, we're looking for something innovative, Jason, what do you take that to mean?
2: I'm smiling here because I think we share very similar ideas on this Innovation is incredibly hard to pinpoint. I think what we would pride ourselves on as a profession is how we quite often get faced with very complicated problem solving, questions around how the building should fit on the site. And I think the true innovation then comes really from creativity and looking to see how we can problem solve. Sometimes that may lead us to um, technology, looking to... Uh, trying to visualise uh, using software to maybe get in and understand how we can uh, bring clients into the design process much uh, much sooner. But sometimes it's just hard work. Sometimes it is just going down and going through scraps of paper, sketching ideas, talking. And then probably more importantly, just communicating, communicating with the team and giving everyone a voice to bring that that fresh ideas to the table and more often than not what we end up with is a, a, an innovative approach to problem solving rather than some uh, singular innovative piece of technology that might represent the best for that particular client.
1: Have you been required to be innovative in some of the buildings that you've designed here in Dubai? Obviously, many of the landmarks that we know and love here in the country have actually been built on reclaimed land, but which by its very nature is, is innovative.
2: Absolutely. And I think that's a great example to so maybe started to, to look at the wider field of architecture and how it can innovate in situations where I think the normal approach um, is just not possible. And I think, as you said, if you're trying to create more shoreline, building on reclaimed land gives you a great opportunity. I can think of other examples where we just had a real lack of space, like one of our schools more recently, where we built on the last tiny little envelope of land, created a very innovative approach to how that particular school evolved and how the design uh, maybe started to challenge how the teaching would happen within those spaces. But it came from this some kind of external pressure that we had to say, well, look, we know we just can't open you know, the, the copy book and start to do something that we've done before. It needed a fresh set of eyes and a, and a fresh think on it. And maybe for us, again, that idea of innovation is very, very closely aligned to creativity. And, and as long as we are allowed to think freely, then I think innovation will generally follow.
1: So in that situation, what's so interesting is that you were restricted and that created more innovation but then of course in some places in the UAE you've got wide open spaces the sky is the limit there's no sort of discussions about not being allowed to go too high or planning restrictions for example particularly if you're building for one of the the major government organizations so does that give you a freedom do you think to be more creative more innovative than maybe in other countries
2: I think certainly the speed at which construction and decision-making policy happens in this region is fantastic. I mean, it is a great place to be here as as an engineer, as a designer, and probably hopefully to live in as well, because let's not forget that a lot of the things that we're talking about today is to make spaces and communities better for people to enjoy, to make it more efficient for them to move from one place to the other, and also not at the expense where we forget to create communities. And I think that Fortunately, as a practice, we've been here now for quite some time. Uh, me personally, I've been here for over 20 years. And I've seen how out-of-town developments at the beginning were seen as being something quite strange, have now suddenly been absorbed into an expanding city where they're just almost villages within a much bigger city. I think the challenges that lie ahead from that is making sure that with all this freedom that we have, that we don't leave islands of development that feel disconnected. I feel that you know maybe innovation will come back into this and look at how public transport for example might be able to answer questions around how we can move more people to workplaces but equally schools and hospitals and all the kind of critical facilities that we need do need to be planned so I don't think that You know, it would be fair to say that we have carte blanche. I think we as designers and conscientious designers at that need to remember that we are still creating communities for people. Uh, And as a practice, I think that's probably been our biggest focus over the years is looking at how we design around people. And hopefully the buildings and some of the ones that you mentioned can be iconic, but at the end of the day, create, um, as I say, a very human centric design.
1: So you guys design everything from, you know, massive buildings to communities. Mm -hmm. How high on the wish list of a client does sustainability come now is it you know one two
2: three eight it's a very difficult one to answer i think we have some amazing clients who put it at 10 you know it has to be what underpins that particular development. I think we have other clients who might just say, look, we acknowledge that it's there and whatever the regulation is guiding us towards, then that is sufficient. But I would imagine that over the next few years, we will see increased pressure for people to be much tougher with these regulations because we we have real data. Um, I mentioned a school earlier which was innovative in how it used the space. But what a lot of people didn't understand is that we decided to demolish a building, which is always quite a, you know, that's quite a big decision to take, But we knew that when we would demolish that building and replace it with a new building that we'd be able to put back five times as much area for the same connected electrical load. And that to us then was great justification in adding a lot more space for that particular client, but at no real energy cost. And again, that comes from pushing the envelope quite literally to you know include extra insulation, looking at placement of windows, looking sometimes at passive measures as well. So adding ceiling fans to spaces that had already air conditioning so that we could raise the, the set point on the on the air conditioning system just to save energy. And I think this passive idea of approaching stuff from being quite frugal, saving energy before you need to build more and more means of generating uh, energy. Uh, is certainly something that I think the industry, whether it comes from, as I said, regulations, or it comes from then running costs, there will be an alignment, and maybe AI and looking at innovation in that field, how it can monitor, how it can prepare data, and help us make these decisions faster and more efficiently. I think we'll probably, hopefully, start to see some some great alignment, and probably some new products which have yet to be even invented coming from that.
1: Yeah, I'd love to talk about the innovative new materials that mm. that are coming on hand, because, of course, as an architect, that must be part of your responsibility to, mm. to look out for clever new ways of building mm. that look attractive, but are also good for the environment.
2: Uh, 100%. I, I think that the industry recognizes its kind of global situation that it's in, where it produces a lot of waste, by its very nature, is very power uh, hungry, and therefore produces a lot of carbon. Because of that, I think the industry for many years now has been looking at using 3D technology much earlier in the process. So what we do now is we start to create digital twins of buildings. So a lot of the the advances that we can then have from advanced modeling and advanced softwares, testing those buildings in an artificial environment before we build them, will will save ultimately because you're not making mistakes in the lifespan of the building, you're almost preempting it and forcing that through a simulation. That has also led to improvements in construction techniques. So not necessarily lots of innovation around brand new materials, but how materials can be put together in more efficient ways. If we can do that, then we are saving embedded energy in buildings because a lot of the traditional wastage that you would have in a construction site is eliminated. Contractors are also now probably under the microscope as well in terms of making sure that even delivery to sites is much more efficient as well. So a lot of off-site fabrication, modular construction is all coming from this idea that we are able to, through a a much more immersive design process, start to find these economies. And as I said, small, small changes multiplied By tens and thousands and eventually millions will make massive savings, provided that everyone understands that, that there is a benefit to this. It may not be the cheapest solution initially, but if you look at the savings that you will reap later, then maybe there'll be a change in mindset that will allow us to be much more sustainable and innovative at the same time.
1: Absolutely fascinating to speak to you. I could carry on for a really long time, really, really interesting subject. And thank you very much indeed for coming to join us here in our Big Five Global Podcast studio. You've been listening to the voice of Jason Burnside, who's Managing Director and a partner at Godwin Austin Johnson. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me and of course innovation that's set to be a recurring theme throughout many of the uh, talks and lectures at the Big 5 global event this December. Now we're going to completely change tack for our second interview in this podcast today because we're going to turn our attention to diversity in construction and that is due to the growth of tech in the sector. So let's take a look now at the construction revolution being driven by the startups and small and medium-sized businesses. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Prakash Senghani, who is the CEO and co-founder of Navatech Group, who work to introduce digital products to low-tech industries. Prakash, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. Hello.
0: Hello. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Lovely to have you here. And it is interesting that now in 2023, we are still discussing the sort of lack of gender and racial diversity in various different sectors. Uh, You know a lot more about this than I do. Is it a problem in the construction industry still?
0: Massive. Globally, I think it's still an issue with only about 18% of the workforce being female across the piece. And I think that's worse here in the Middle East, because of the migrant labor, that labor force that we have and that we use in the industry. If you then translate that into the tech world, it's even worse funding for tech startups across the board, but particularly for tech startups in construction is really, really low. So I think some of the stats are only 3% of funding goes to female-led startups globally, and it's never been above that in the last 15 years. So when you bring construction and technology together, I think you're exacerbating this problem of diversity or the issue around diversity.
1: Very few women around the meeting table then, very few women are joining you for coffee at the moment. Mm-hmm. But is there an awareness of this in the upper echelons of the sector? You know, are efforts being made to make changes? Because I I mean, globally, it is acknowledged that if you have diversity in your board, you have diversity in your management, it has a fantastic impact on profits, you know, up 19%. You know, there is a business case for this.
0: Absolutely. And, And yes, I think there's an acknowledgement at all levels, particularly at the senior levels. If you look at within construction, there's targets to try and bring more diversity in. But I think the process of doing this is not, there's no magic bullet. You're going to have to start right from the early stages in the education, make construction a much more attractive place to come. There's issues with attracting people to come generally. And then you've got the layer of attracting females to come into the industry on top of that. There's things that are happening at the very early stages of the education where they're allowing people to understand what construction is, how diverse construction is from a skill set perspective. So as we digitize construction, there's skill sets that are no longer like the traditional ones that require physical strength. Or, for example, we're now employing software developers in construction. We're uh, employing data scientists and we're game developers in the construction industry. These are skills that were traditionally never been associated with. And these are skills that can be done by anybody.
1: Yeah, less of a need for hobnail boots and a, and a hard hat, so to speak, and, you know, more office work, ultimately. And not, I'm not saying that women wouldn't want to go out onto a sort of construction site, although I wouldn't, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. Um, but but you can understand why it would be more appealing to a woman to be working you know, in, a, in the tech sector within the construction industry. Well paid jobs as well, I'm sure. Um, let's take a look at that startup and SME sector in construction. Are we seeing diversity there? Is it coming through in any way in these new startups, in these new SMEs?
0: I would love to say yes, but I think still no. I think mean, part of the reason was what I mentioned earlier is the lack of funding for female or female-led startups. And the kind of knock-on effect of that, or the maybe the precursor to that, is that the decision-makers in these funding organisations are not female either. I think the statistic is there's 12% of uh, decision makers at venture capitalist firms, which are the primary investors within these early startups, are females. And so there's a lack of understanding about some of the technologies that these female founders are bringing to the table and some of the issues that they're trying to solve because the people around the decision-making table are all males who can't relate to that that issue. So I think it's going to take time to mature this ecosystem.
1: The first step is acknowledgement, isn't it? The first step is no... That there's a problem. I know that here in the Middle East, there is a real drive towards developing the small and medium sized business sort of sector. Is that bearing fruit in the construction industry? Not just talking about diversity, but are you seeing more SMEs, more startups in your sector more widely?
0: Absolutely. Um, so there's lots of them coming. The biggest issue I think that we face is the investment at the early, at the very early stages. And this is one of the things that we're going to be discussing on the panel that I'm going to be moderating um, at the Big Five, where there's challenges around getting investment into the very early stages of a company. So before they become an SME, they'll be considered a, a seed stage company. And there's real struggles with getting investment in at those levels before they start to mature. Um, and there's huge funding requirements, as you can imagine, at these very early stages
1: who is investing money are you getting it from governments are you getting it from venture capitalists are the big construction firms considering investing in small and medium sized businesses
0: Absolutely. So, the thing that has changed is that the source of funds has really broadened over the last maybe say five years, five or six years. Traditionally, venture capitalists was the only kind of game in town. But now you've got what's called corporate venture capitalists, which is these construction companies who've got a vested interest in growing the ecosystem and and growing things within the industry. So, they're also starting to invest with the objective of catching the wave of these new companies coming into there. Then you've also got within the region, we're uniquely placed to get money. from sovereign wealth funds, um, family offices, and things like that, which is which is I think unique to this region. The issue we've had historically is that a lot of this money wants to go outside. They've earned it within the region, and so for diversification's sake, they want to invest it externally, in usually in the United States or in Europe. And then the European or or American money thinks that there's lots of money here already, so they don't want to come here. So we end up in this paradox where we've had this lack of funding, which I think is changing. On the business breakfast a few weeks ago, I was listening to a VC saying that they're having more meetings with American VCs in Dubai than they are in Silicon Valley itself. And that's just an amazing statistic. So I think things are changing really, really quickly. And I'm sure this is going to be a topic of discussion amongst the startups that are going to be exhibiting at the startup city as part of the Big Five.
1: It is indeed a fascinating sort of shift that we're seeing there. I'm interested to hear that the construction companies themselves are looking to invest in startups because we've been hearing on this podcast series just how risk adverse the construction industry is. So that feels like a real transition there.
0: Absolutely, it takes a real shift in mindset for these for this, and a different, completely different skill set within these construction companies to come and look at investments put in risk, as you say, these risk averse companies are paralysed by this risk. You here, you've got this massively risky proposition that you're asking them to do. And a lot of them don't get it right, I have to be honest. And a lot of them are kind of approaching it, in my opinion, in the wrong way. They're looking at investing in these companies to look at how they're going to add to their bottom line directly. What I think they should be doing is investing in companies that are potentially going to make them obsolete in the future. And so therefore, they've got a stake in an organisation that might make them irrelevant in the future. And there's a few companies that are doing this. There's a few corporate venture capital firms that are looking at it and approaching it in that way.
1: So is it tech that's driving this? You know, this need to transition to a more sort of technology-driven industry?
0: No, I think there's external forces to it. One around The lack of productivity within the construction industry is a a widely known problem that we've we've got. We haven't been able to solve it by any other means, and technology is providing a potential solution there. There's acknowledgement that compared to other industries like retail, like finance, like manufacturing, we're not as productive. And one of the reasons for that is the lack or the low levels of digitalization within the the industry. And then I think the third thing is the technology itself. The technology itself is advancing. People are using it in their personal and private lives and realizing how easy it's making things in their personal lives. Why can't it do the same thing for us in the world of construction work?
1: So it's not the tech that's driving it; it's a desire for productivity, increased productivity that's driving it. Okay, so how is tech already being used in the construction sector? You know, are you using these large language models? You know, the LLMs. You know, are managers already engaging with them? I can't think of any way in which you know, when you're building a when you're building a <laughs> massive skyscraper, you'd be using an LLM. But but I'm going to ask you anyway.
0: <laughs> uh, absolutely. So there's there's a whole range of technologies and the whole future tech summit at the Big Five is is all about this. It's about how this technology is impacting the industry and what technology is being used and where and why and what value it can add. But talking about LLMs, which are in vogue at the moment, so the company that I founded, we are using LLMs to help make construction safer, right? So we're using LLMs to have these meaningful conversations with the workforce, helping to first and foremost improve their quality of life by giving them the information that they need at the point that their risks might occur in, Giving them these micro trainings and things like that, but also helping them to understand what some of their rights are and and, and being able to raise grievances in a confidential manner. And so that's one way. Another way LLMs are are helping is to help write documentation that's clear and concise and not have these huge pieces of war and peace that nobody ever reads, right? So within construction, we tend to produce a whole bunch of paperwork that nobody ever ends up reading. LLMs are being used to create things like proposal documentation to health and safety documentation, quality management documentation. So there's a huge use case for LLMs within the construction industry.
1: Absolutely fascinating. I feel we just skimmed over the surface of this. And that was Prakash Sangani, who is the CEO and co-founder of Navatech group who work to introduce digital products to low-tech industries. And that brings us to a close of this, our fourth fantastic episode of the Big Five Global podcast. Just a quick reminder that you can subscribe and download to all of our episodes. We're going to be doing eight in total. So definitely check out all of our episodes so far and be sure to subscribe for those coming in the future.
0: To register for Big Five Global at the World Trade Center from the 4th to the 7th of December, head to bigfiveglobal.com.